So we have the, the privilege and the joy once again to have with us, we, he's called our, our guest preacher. We need a new term. Is it like frequent flyer, can we have frequent guest? As long as I get miles. Frequent guest. We'll, we'll give him miles. Okay, we'll give him miles. Uh, but I'm delighted to tell you that we're going to get James for six weeks in a, in a series in Paul's correspondence to the Thessalonians. And so this is the first of many that we get to enjoy. So James, we look forward to hearing you bring the word to us. It's always a delight to be back with you, and especially since we'll be able to join you for the next few weeks till the end of February. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians. I spent some time several years ago in preaching through 1 Thessalonians and writing about it, and uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to take uh, a bird's eye view of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, You have the text in your order of service. And I'll not read from this at the beginning right now, but in case you want to uh, flip over to the background that I'll reference as we go through this, the background for this is in Acts 17. So if you want to put your bulletin in that place, that is the, uh, the story in Acts that's the background for the establishment of this church. We're going to look at what happens when the gospel comes to town, what happens when, a go- when the gospel comes to a city, in particular to Thessalonica? So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask at this time that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. We pray that you would send your spirit so that we would not only hear your word, but that we would receive it with power, as Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians. Receive it with the full conviction that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that our lives might be transformed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What happens when the gospel comes to town? What happens when the gospel comes to a city, a city like Thessalonica? That's going to be our entryway into this book 
as we take the next few weeks to look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is not a letter that receives a lot of attention, to be honest. One of Paul's letters that receives a lot of attention. Romans gets a lot of attention. Galatians gets a lot of attention. Corinthians, for other reasons. Ephesians. But 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians do not. Sometimes people avoid them because they talk about some complicated things. Other times, it's just a smaller book. But this book was perhaps Paul's first letter. It's either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. We're not exactly sure. But perhaps it's certainly one of the first two letters that Paul writes. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we have the background for the establishment of this church in Acts 17. And I want you to imagine with me for just a moment as we begin taking ourselves back to the first century to that city, Thessalonica. As we begin this uh, journey through this letter, it's helpful for us to kind of take a moment to see what this city looked like during Paul's time. If we were in that city, the first obvious thing we'd notice, it is, it is an extremely large city. It's one of the top ten cities of the world at that time with over 100,000 people. There was fertile farmland we would see. We would see mining operations. We would see a great fishing industry. And as we look around, it is obvious that the city is an important travel center. It's a central road. It has a central road that connects Asia to Europe called the Via Ignatia. This is the road Paul is taking on his second missionary journey as he's trying to get to Macedonia in the story in Acts 17. But not only does it have a central road, it also has a central harbor. Thessalonica is similar to a city like New York City that has, if if you've been to New York City, you know they have this harbor that's constantly moving freight. They have a rail line right beside the harbor and they have one of their central plane uh, airports right beside the rail line. That's the kind of transportation center that Thessalonica is. And as we look around and observe the city, one of the things we see is it's a very religious city. There are shrines and temples everywhere. This is the city that Paul comes to with his gospel. As he comes with this gospel to this city, he's on his second missionary journey... And he's pushing his way to Macedonia, and as he goes along this central road, this central Roman road, he makes stops along the way. In the book of Acts, he had just stopped at Philippi. And as you know in the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in in a city with the gospel, there's usually some commotion. That is no less the case here in this story of Thessalonians. So Paul ends up here in Thessalonica preaching the gospel. And we want to ask that question, what happens when the gospel comes into a town? There are four main points that I want us to see from chapter 1. Number one, the gospel forms a community. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Number two, the community lives by the Spirit. Verses 4 and 5. Number three, the Spirit moves through much affliction and joy, verse 6. And then finally, the perseverance of the community, our perseverance in faith in our journey, becomes an example to others. Those four points are what we're going to look at here in chapter 1. Point number 1, the gospel forms a community. 
verse 1, Paul gives this typical greeting that he does in almost all of his letters. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. One of the first obvious things to notice in any letter that Paul writes is that he's writing this letter to the church. That word for church means called out ones. Those who have been called out from other communities that they were part of to join this community, this gospel community. Now listen to the way it's described in Acts 17 as this church forms. Paul was traveling through that, that central road and he comes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, and Acts 17 says there was a synagogue there, which is Paul's custom. As a missionary, when Paul goes into a town, the first place he goes is a synagogue. That's very strategic. Paul could have put on his robe, his what we would call clerical robe as a Pharisee, go into a synagogue, and he could have preached and taught and spoke at any synagogue. That was kind of the mark that he had the ability to stand up and speak. And so Paul goes in, as was his custom, Acts 17 says, and reasoned with the Jews from the Scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, which means the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, this is what Paul does over and over in Acts. He goes into the synagogue and he takes all these Old Testament passages about the promises of the Messiah. And he he goes to them and he says, this is what happened With Jesus. And so thus it says in verse 3 This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul goes in preaching in the synagogue, and from that preaching, verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, verse 4 indicates that when this community started, There are some significant people from the city that actually believed. The way the verse describes it, not only did some of the Jews join who were persuaded, but a great many devout Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, and the verse says leading women. Women who were part of the cultural elite of the city. But something happens in verse 5 that we'll come back and look at again in a moment, but I want to point out right now. Others in the synagogue, the Jews, became jealous. And they took some men from the town who were the scum of the town, if you will, and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now, that's what takes place as they come into the city. There's a church that gets established. And as that church gets established, there's some commotion that happens, which we'll circle back around to. So Paul says, this church... In the city of Thessalonica has been established by the preaching of the word. This gospel that he preached forms this community. And this community takes its identity, back in 1 Thessalonians, according to Paul, takes its identity as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the identity and shape of the church is that the church is bound up, the way the Old Testament would have described it, in covenant with God. That you have a relationship with God so that you can call God Father. You can't just skip over that word. The shift from being a God-fearing Greek to calling God Father and Lord, the Lord Jesus as the Christ 
is a significant transformation. It's a transformation that Paul describes as being enveloped in grace and peace, which is why he says grace to you and peace. It's the realm in which they live. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans. In Romans 5, he talks about the grace in which you stand. The image he gives of grace is that at one point you were outside of it, and then God takes you and places you in grace so that you're enveloped by grace. You stand in grace. That's what he means when he calls you accepted or the beloved or adopted. That's the essence of what it means to be a church. Paul goes on to describe in 1 Thessalonians that he gives thanks for them, verse 2, making mention of them in his prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and notice this, your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope. Now you'll recognize those three. That's the triad of Paul's virtues, the greatest of all virtues. You'll recognize those three because even though we are inclined to remember 1 Corinthians 13 as the place where Paul says it, he says it over and over in his letters. And he may reverse the order, change the order up for different purposes. In this letter, he puts hope at the end because by the time he gets to the the end of this letter, he's going to be talking about the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. That's why hope is at the end there. But this work of faith... And labor of love and steadfastness of hope are the great virtues of the Christian faith. It is what your character should look like. Faith, love, and hope. And these are so important in the the course of this book. We'll come back to them in a separate sermon. But it's important to notice at this time that this is part of the journey of the Christian faith. This is the essence of the journey for Paul. It's so important that church uh, theologians and preachers like Augustine and Luther and even Calvin use these three to structure the notion of spirituality for Christians. Paul is moving us in this letter to see the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian spirituality as being encompassed by these three things. It is what you believe, faith. It is what you do, love, And it is what you anticipate, hope. So that's what it looks like to be formed as a church. So when the gospel comes to town, the gospel forms a community. Point two, this community that's been formed, this church, lives by the Spirit. Notice verse 4 and 5. Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now Paul says here that as this community takes shape, they live by the power of the Spirit. This is a very important point. And, you know, we all have different personalities. Some of us are a bit more emotional than others. Some are a bit more live in our heads more than others. Some live in our guts and just want to do something right away more than others. Most of the time in the Reformed tradition, we tend to be a little heady. 
We tend to gravitate towards sermons that have a lot of content, a lot of depth. And we leave the emotional side of things for other Christian traditions. But you cannot escape in Scripture the way the Spirit works in your life individually. And there are moments in the course of your life when the Spirit moves and you shouldn't resist the way He works to shape your heart and your life. Sometimes those moments are very emotional. It doesn't mean you all of a sudden got saved again. It means that's part of the faith journey. And the word that Paul uses here with the Holy Spirit, that word power is the same word he uses in, first, uh, in Romans 1.16 when he talks about the power of the gospel. It's the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite. That's not accidental. The Spirit moves with a power, according to Paul, that eventually became the word for dynamite in our language. It's an explosive power. It's a power inherent within the spirit itself that dwells within you. And that power, according to Paul, brings conviction. It brings other things that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not highlighting. Being loved by God and chosen. Love and grace are fundamental components of what the spirit does. But at the end of the verse, it brings power and conviction. Now, there's an important reason why he mentions this, because this group of Christians needed that kind of power and conviction. I read the passage. I jumped ahead and read the passage in Acts 17. I was going to wait for this point. I got carried away. And it was the passage where the Jews became jealous in Acts 17 and verse 5. And they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, and brought him out to the crowd. When they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities. This is what they faced. Now, one of the central aspects of the city of Thessalonica, these authorities that they mention here in Acts 17, were the rulers of the city. Thessalonica was a free city, according to the Roman Empire. It was an old Greek city. But they gave them freedom to mint their own coins and do things as long as... As they didn't create a problem. In the Roman Empire, if you don't create a problem, we'll ignore you. Send us your money. Pay tribute to Caesar. Continue to be a good city. And we'll let it go. And these authorities had the responsibility to lead the city and keep that freedom. And one of the central responsibilities of these authorities was that these rulers of the city not only were appointed by Rome to make sure everything worked smoothly, but they led the city in worship. They were almost like priest rulers. And in the history of uh, the way the Roman Empire was set up, these rulers didn't just lead them in the worship of any god or goddess. They led them in the worship of Caesar. Now you'll recall, we just finished Christmas time, and in the year of Caesar Augustus, was when Christ was born. And that time period in the Roman Empire with Caesar Augustus and what comes the next 30 or 40 years that we're talking about was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And it was the period of time when Rome built roads. There was no war. There wasn't much war taking place. And so the military would build roads and they construct connections between cities and they put outposts in different places. 
so that there would be safe passage. And it was described that Caesar Augustus, during these times of great improvement in the, in the Roman Empire, it was said of Caesar Augustus that he brought peace and security and prosperity, that Caesar Augustus brought a kingdom to us, that Caesar Augustus, they said, brought us, and this is the word they used, the gospel. Caesar Augustus was the bringer of the gospel, the good news, that there's freedom as long as you worship him. That's the environment in which these Christians believed. So you had to worship Caesar. You had to pay tribute to Caesar and you had to call Caesar Lord Caesar. And you could not call someone else that. That's why Paul makes such a big deal in Romans 10 when he talks about confessing Jesus as Lord. He's not just talking about a private interior moment for you inside a church building. He's talking about a public profession where the Christians who were taken to the Colosseum professed Jesus as Lord and not Caesar, which meant they risked their lives. And you can see it in Acts 17. The very fact that they had confessed Jesus as Lord, they get drug out to the city. And notice they're shouting. Uh, here's the point. They're shouting in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. That's the heresy in the Roman Empire. When the gospel comes to a town and it forms a community and that community lives by the spirit, that spirit must give them the conviction and power to confess Jesus before whatever it is that they face. And in this case, it's confessing him as king and not Caesar. You'll notice verse 8 says the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They knew what had happened when Paul left Philippi. They knew what had happened when the gospel went to these other places. And the language they use here is that this gospel is doing what, according to the end of verse 6? Turning the world upside down. Our world was right. Caesar was king. We have this freedom and this prosperity and everything's okay. But now, this other gospel has come to town, and this other king Paul's talking about called Jesus, and it's turning our world upside down, and it's disrupting our commerce and our economy. You need the power of the Holy Spirit and conviction when you face something like that. You need to believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding you through this. And that brings me to the third point. The third point, not only does the community live by the Spirit, as we just saw, but the Spirit moves through much affliction and joy. Point number three. This is a fundamental, important point in the book of Thessalonica, and it is a fundamental, important point in Paul's theology. And if you don't get this as a Christian, you will face a lot of hardship in the course of your life. The Spirit works 
through affliction and joy. Verse 6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, how in the world do those two things go side by side? How do you put the Spirit, how do you put affliction beside joy? Sometimes that doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes we live with the assumption that we grow in the Christian faith, and if we're following God and doing the things we're supposed to, everything goes okay. And then when a problem comes, we're completely shocked and taken off guard. Why in the world did you let this happen, God? I am being faithful and going to church. I'm praying with my family. I'm doing this with my spouse. Why are you letting this happen? I thought I was faithful. And then the great temptation at that point is to be bitter. To be bitter about what's happened and angry at God. This is over and over in the New Testament. I could give you numerous verses that indicate how affliction and joy go side by side. I've done a lot of studying in uh, initiation rites in different cultures. Even in the church through the Middle Ages and other things, why certain things in churches were set up. And in our current time period... A lot of those kind of initiation rites have passed away. And you'll see books written, especially for men sometimes, how do you train a young boy when you've lost those? One of the first, initi- one of the first aspects of initiation rite consistently across cultures is to expect life to be hard and death is inevitable. It's one of the first lessons they try to teach to young boys. That's the nature of the world we live in. And becoming a Christian doesn't change that. In some cases, becoming a Christian doubles down on it. And so they believe, and then they face much affliction from the authorities. I put a quote in the um, bulletin on page four from Leslie Newbigin, who wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic, Pluralist Society. Newbigin uh, was something of a missionary in India, uh, all over the world, really. And his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, is, is a really phenomenal book um, about the shifts in our culture. And Newbigin says in that book this quote, When Jesus sent out his disciples on mission, he showed them his hands and his side. They will share in his mission as they share in his passion. In his suffering is what the passion means. As they follow him in challenging and unmasking the powers of evil. There is no other way to be with him. At the heart of mission is simply the desire to be with him and to give him the service of our lives. At the heart of mission is thanksgiving and praise. At the heart of mission is, to use Jesus' language, picking up your cross and following Jesus. And that's what these Christians did through the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is not there in order to make life go smoothly. The power of the Holy Spirit is there in order to help you through 
the pain and the suffering and the loss and the trial. And Paul has some things to say to clarify and make sure that we get this clear. And that brings us to our last point. Point number four. Our perseverance in faith, our journey of faith, will become an example to others. As we labor on and as we press on, our faith becomes an example to others. Look at verses 7 through 10. Right after the uh, verse 6 that we just looked at, Paul goes on and says, So that, now get that, so that the affliction and joy that the Holy Spirit brought to you happened, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. This faith that was witnessed as the gospel came to Thessalonica was not only for the sake of those people in that church, but as Paul went forth to the next city, and the next place he goes is Athens in Acts 17. Now, he's eventually going on to Macedonia, and we'll see later, Paul gets to Athens, and he's so worried about these Christians that he sends Timothy back to check on them, and he waits for, uh, for Timothy in Athens. That's when, in Acts 17, Paul gets agitated at all the, uh, the idols around Athens and gets in front of the Areopagus. All that's happening while he's worried about this church. Worried that this church will stay faithful to the gospel because Paul knows when suffering comes, whether it's suffering directly connected to your faith or a shattered dream that you didn't expect and and a misplaced expectation, Paul knows that the temptation is to turn away. And so he wants to make sure they don't do that. So he sends Timothy back. And they, they stay faithful. And their faith becomes an example to other Christians so that they believe as well. I want you to notice as we wrap this up how Paul describes this in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, that how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now if we're back in Thessalonica... And we're walking around the city and we see all these shrines to gods. Thessalonica was known as having a multitude of shrines and temples to gods. If you have a central thoroughfare of a road and a harbor, you're going to put up every shrine you can. Do you know why? Because that brings in money. You go to the temple, you pay your temple dues because this is the God you're trying to appease so that your farming goes well, your mining goes well. All these gods around the city are bringing commerce into the city. And when you start to touch someone's wallet or pocketbook, it gets very dicey. And that's why they were so angry in Acts 17 and said, you're turning the world upside down. Because as these Christians believed, they turned from these idols to serve the living and true God. They didn't frequent the temples anymore. They didn't go pay their dues to the temple gods and goddesses. 
But if we were to walk around Thessalonica a little longer and be able to look in the distance north of the city, we would see a mountain rising up in the horizon. Mount Olympus was in the background of the city of Thessalonica. Maybe you recognize that, depending upon how much modern mythology you've read. Mount Olympus is the, go- is the location of the Greek gods that are connected to Zeus. The great Greek gods of Greek mythology found their home in the mountain that overshadowed the city of Thessalonica. So you can imagine that that kind of pressure on that city, as Paul comes speaking of a one true God, they turned from all these idols to serve the living and the true God. That's the essence of faith for them at that point. Now, of course, faith grows in the course of your life. That's the initial step of faith. If you're going to the temple and and worshiping the gods and goddesses and you turn away from that, And as you grow as a Christian, other things come. And Paul will address those things in 1 Thessalonians. But that is the initial step for them. And then Paul adds a couple of other things in verse 10. Notice what he says. Their faith, as they turn to God, their faith is focused on Christ. As they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. To come. This is such an important verse. The faith that you have is a faith not only that loves other people, as Paul said in the first part of the chapter, and loves God, but it hopes, it looks toward Jesus. A, a faith that he was raised from the dead so you are forgiven, but it also a faith that looks to Jesus who, according to the very end of verse 10, delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, why is that so important in this context? These Christians have suffered at the hands of this city and these rulers. They believe on Jesus, they confess him as Lord, and then the man named Jason and some of the brothers get drug out into the street to tell the city authorities where Paul and Silas are. And in their conviction, Jason and the other Christians, they did not tell the city authorities where Paul and Silas were. Paul and Silas slip out by night to go on to Macedonia so they're safe. So imagine you're Jason days and weeks after that and you're still suffering at the hands of the city authorities or others because of your faith. What is going to crop into your mind? Well, maybe, maybe I did the wrong thing. I'm suffering so much now. I'm going through such pain. Is this the right choice? Or have I done something else wrong and God's punishing me for this? Is my suffering because God's not pleased with my faith? Was I not bold enough? Those questions are a common human response to suffering. It's why I think suffering draws up, if we don't get bitter, suffering is the doorway to continually draw us closer to God because it knocks us down. And so if you're in that moment where you're suffering 
You're not sure why, and it's very painful. And you're tempted to think God's doing something to punish you. Paul says, no. That kind of wrath has been taken care of when Jesus died. God has delivered you from that kind of judgment and wrath, according to verse 10. And the suffering that you're going through now is redemptive suffering. It's purifying suffering. It's not punishment. It's for your joy as you move through the affliction. Which is why he told them that the Spirit brings, the Spirit comes with much affliction and joy. When the gospel comes to a town, when the gospel intrudes into a city and a culture, according to Acts 17.6, it turns the world upside down. I pray, as we've looked at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, that you are encouraged by the way Paul describes the gospel coming into a city and that you can move forward in your faith not fearing the suffering and the pain and the trial that you face, but viewing them as part of God's providence and work in your life to bring about joy, a deep joy, beyond just the things of this world. And that your faith actually causes the world to turn upside down for some people in the multitude of different ways than it can in our culture. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit gives us the conviction to do just that. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would draw us close to you and that you would cause us to not only believe what we've heard, but to live in such a way that we are confident of the gospel, that we can trust you in the choices we make and the direction of our lives, and that when we come upon suffering and trials, that we can believe that they are part of your plan to bring us to a deeper sense of joy. We pray that as we live our lives and are a witness in various ways by our actions and our words, that our faith would cause the world to be turned upside down for some of our friends so that they might ask what kind of confidence we have as we go through these trials. We thank you for Jesus who died upon the cross for us, was raised from the dead for our justification, and he has delivered us from the wrath to come. And we ask that we would be faithful to you and glorify you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.